The book of uh, 1 Corinthians is at least the second letter. It seems like Paul wrote five letters to the church in a town called Corinth, a city called Corinth, a church that Paul started about a year and a half before uh, we have, uh, maybe a little longer than that, before uh, Paul started this church and then he's writing letters uh, to be able to help the church grow and help the church understand uh, what's, what's going on in the world. The, the New Testament wasn't written. They were just sharing stories about Jesus and the things that he had said to them and the things that they were saying to each other and things that were happening among the followers of Jesus. And so as they are um, living history and living history out, Paul writes them letters uh, to try to help them with some specific issues that they were having. And in their town, uh, they were having some sp really issues with uh, like life and living life and in their uh, like the civil religion in their area or the what we would call the pagan religion in their area was uh, there were gods like Aphrodite and Venus and you would worship them uh, through uh, ritual or temple prostitution and so sexuality for them in their culture wasn't something that was uh, like taboo it was just part of oh you go to church so do i this is what we do at my church what do you do at your church right like we talk about oh my church has guitars my church has drums they talked about something different and uh, so imagine in a culture like that where this is normative this is how people live and then we start a church that honors god where you, part of honoring god is honoring god with our bodies and honoring god with our with everything that we are uh, it, it created some tension in the very early church because they didn't have a lot of examples of how to live this out. And so they were just trying to uh, get there. And so today we're talking about love in that context because all of 1 Corinthians ends up coming back to love being uh, what Christianity has to offer. And I still think love is what Christianity has to offer the world. As the world gets increasingly complex, our problems aren't necessarily new, but they're coming at us faster, and they uh, seem to be more polarized in our culture. Uh, that, uh, the reason why I like this video is because that loving in the way that the Scripture teaches is something that is distinct about Christianity. And there's Christians in this room who vote entirely different than you, cheer for sports teams that are entirely different than you, think that the, the way the world works entirely differently than you do. But all Christians are called to this love and loving uh, ourselves, loving God, loving ourselves, and loving others. And that love, I think, might be the most challenging part of being a Christian. Because uh, love is a word that is thrown around in our culture, like I love my wife, I also love tacos, right? Like it's just, <laughs> I love ice cream in the evening. You know, like it's just, you just... Uh, we throw that word around, but when the scripture uses the word love, it's such a deep and passionate and persistent, never failing, uh, it's not an emotion even, it's a choice that creates emotion, and maybe an emotional choice. And so chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians is about halfway, and Paul actually is going to start talking about marriage and single living. And most of the time, uh, in the church, uh, marriage is seen as this like goal, right? Like once you're married, then you're 
whole or something. There's this like, this, nobody ever says it, but there's kind of this feeling that goes around. And, and, and if you're married, but you don't have kids, you're not quite done. You got to have those kids. And if you hang around, if you're single and you hang around with married people, all they talk about is how great their kids are. And the fact is, they are not that great, right? <laughs> like, congratulations, your kid walks, you know, like, slowly and like they're drunk like it's not that's not impressive all right like and, and I understand like your kid graduated kindergarten that's not impressive either right but you feel when you if you're single you feel or you don't have kids you know you run into that kind of uh, tension all right you uh, <laughs> I'm a pastor and so when you have a baby, sometimes not as much now because everybody's terrified of germs, but uh, you go to the hospital and you get to, and the pastor says, what a wonderful baby you have, right? And I never, I don't hold your babies because I'm terrified, right? Like you don't, I know that you can't just switch them out and you can't just repair them, you know, like those kinds of things. But uh, my kids also were born tanned, right? Because we're in a um, multiracial family. And so my kids were born look like they come out like Cristiano Ronaldo. It's just like beautiful, right? And a lot of my friends' kids come out like really white. Like they got <laughs> like no sunshine in the womb, right? And I'm just like, man. And, and I was not aware that y'all's kids were so white. And so I'd visit your kids and I'd be like, oh, this is so great saying encouraging things because I know there's something wrong with your kid, but I don't... I don't know what to say, and then I'd ask my wife on the way out, like, hey, so what'd the doctor say, you know, and they're like, like, is the kid albino or something, like, not that that's good or bad, it's just, you know, that's going to be something we pray about. Those are the kind of things that we walk into, and, and uh, when you, so now when you're thinking your kid is wildly beautiful, when I look at your kid, I'm like, you know, they have a, you know, they have that warming light. Do they have like a tanning bed in the back too or something? But, but the, that kind of thing happens and you experience that kind of tension, especially in a culture that sees marriage and then child rearing to be like this panacea, this peak of the mountain that we're all trying to get to. And what's interesting in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is it actually teaches the opposite. It's actually today's sermon is on marriage and single living, and it's mostly for, for those of us who are here, those of you who are here, because I'm married, those of you who are here who are single, uh, whether you are uh, newly single, uh, single, uh, always single, or single by your choice, or single by someone else's choice, more and more, a higher and higher percentage of adults living in our world are living single. And the church consistently talks about marriage, 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 because the reality is, we generally suck at it, right? Like, as much as I'm an awesome husband, sometimes my wife doesn't understand my awesomeness, right? But, <laughs> the, it's, it's, it, yeah, okay, I hope you understand that's a joke. If it's your first time, that's a joke. I, I, I'm generally terrible on a regular basis. But, <laughs> uh, but be living with other people in, involves challenges. Invo it's difficult. And so as a culture, we struggle with that. And so there's a lot of pastors that are trying to help people with that. But I think living single involves its own set of challenges. 
It involves a set of challenges that your married friends might not have the ability to understand. And so my sermon today is for our single friends. And if you're married here today and you're like, man, I wish I had got more out of that sermon, uh, maybe you'll get something out where you'll understand how annoying you, you are to your single friends. Uh, all right? And you'll be able to minister to them in a more godly way and be able to love them. All right? And so we're going to read through this piece by piece. I'm not going to do every single verse. There's 40 verses in chapter 7, and it talks all about it. Uh, but we're going to go right through, and I'm going to pick out chunks, and we're going to talk to people who are single. We're going to talk to people who are married. Uh, but we're going to end up uh, really focused on uh, unmarried people and what that means. And whether you're uh, older or younger or unmarried by choice or by uh, maybe a, a marriage that didn't work or by even by the death of your spouse, uh, there is some pain that is involved. Even if you've never been married, there's sometimes some pain that's involved with that, and the Scripture actually meets you where you are. That's what I think is beautiful in this, that Jesus actually has something to say to you. It's not that you need to get to a place where Jesus finally has instruction for you. Jesus has instruction for you here. So let's start uh, first with talking about um, sex. Now, uh, for the matters you wrote about, so apparently the Corinthians wrote a letter to uh, Paul. It said, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Uh, uh, so they're talking about, technically, so you understand in their culture, they're talking about uh, celibacy, but celibacy in a single kind of situation. And Paul will answer that. That's kind of a rhetorical question. He says, or do you, oh, sorry, that's chapter six. And he says, but since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband, all right? So if you're married, you want to just, like, there's a checkbox, right? Like, hey, there's something. Uh, I'm going to, you know, only be intimate with my spouse. There we go. I'm obeying 1 Corinthians 7, 2, all right? There's 600 commands in the Bible, and you've got one on lock. Um, the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife. And likewise, the wife to her husband. And now let's get even more controversial. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. All right, now, we're just going to stop there for a second. You can skip to the next. That's what happens the majority of the time. And let me read the next verse. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. And I'm going to uh, continue with this verse. Do not deprive each other. And this is talking about what you think it's talking about. Do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and then come again, come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish all of you were as I am, which is single. Paul was single. But each of you has your own gift from God. Uh, one is this gift, another that. Referring to the gift of marriage as a gift and the gift of being single as a gift. So Paul is saying, uh, is celibacy okay for single people? Yes. And we would say, yeah, that's obvious. But in a culture where that intimacy was connected to worship, to not or to be celibate as a single person would be striking, would be unusual, would be confusing to the surrounding culture. And so Paul is saying for a Christian single person, celibacy is allowed. We would say, like because we've read the rest of the scripture, celibacy is the 
choice, the only choice that scripture allows for a single person, which we'll get into in a little bit. But this is saying, in his culture, this was a radical thing, that a, a single person would be uh, not uh, engaging in intimacy with anyone. And so you're allowed to be celibate if you're single, but if uh, you're, since there's so much immorality, uh, if you're married, uh, stick together inside your marriage. And your marriage, in marriage, your bodies don't belong to yourselves, they belong to your partner. It's an interesting little concept because people can take that and go all sorts of different ways, right? Uh, people can take that and do things that are uh, domineering or abusive. And you say, like, read this verse, you must. And that's not the way that marriage works at all. Marriage works, if you, if you just take this verse and don't take the whole of marriage, marriage works in a serving relationship. The beauty of two people that are in love is that I now live with my number one priority as 100% the other person. And the reason it's beautiful is that other person now lives 100%, their priority is the, the first person, or me. And when that's operating, marriage becomes beautiful. Marriage actually becomes an image of the relationship in the Trinity between God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. That's why we were even given marriage in the first place, so that we can understand God because of the love and the intimacy that exists in there. But uh, Paul says this is all a concession because you guys are so confused and having such a difficult time with marriage and intimacy and what that means that I'm going to give you some concessions and this is the way that you should probably operate because you're so bad at this in general. Not blaming you, but because you, you live in a culture that has made you so bad at this in general. Uh, and then there's a connection between prayer and intimacy. There's a connection between your spiritual life and your sexual life, which is an interesting concept that we often think aren't connected. We think spirituality is way over there and sexuality is way over there. And the scripture actually teaches that those two things are actually very, very close, much closer uh, maybe than other parts of our life. And it's an uh, interesting experience for the Christian to understand your spiritual life when you're connected to another person, uh, being connected to your, your intimate life in your connection to another person. So it continues. <clears throat> so it continues. This is one of those scriptures or one of those sermons I don't want my voice to crack, and it just did. Now to the unmarried and to the widows, I say it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. Uh, you thought you were getting good news at church, and this is crap news. But there's a concession. If they cannot control themselves, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. That's a tattoo if I've ever heard one, right? I had a Bible college professor who taught me this scripture. He taught me New Testament letters, and he was an older gentleman about three years away from retirement and uh, got saved as an adult, uh, like uh, his early college years, uh, became a Christian. Uh, he, he said, I read this scripture, I prayed about it, and I was burning. And so I found the prettiest girl I could, and I married her. <laughs> because that's a correct application of the scripture. So, young people, if you're burning... This is like the last thing you hoped I would say to you, right? Like the, you're like, I sure hope the pastor makes eye contact with me and says and talks to me about my burning passions. Oh, geez, I didn't want this either. But the scripture says, 
If you're burning, get married. It's a great idea for you not to be burning with passion your entire life, but it's a concession because that burning with passion is actually a, a revelation of the lack of willpower that exists inside of you. That the burning passion in you is overpowering the reasonableness or the self-control that the Holy Spirit wants to give you. And so if you're single, it's awesome for you to stay single. And I'm going to share why in a minute. But if that's impossible for you, and you know if it's impossible for you, then find someone perfect and stop burning. Let them extinguish that passion in you. <laughs> All right. I wrote that line because it's kind of a double thing in there, and it's like, oh, that's, a, that's bad. So uh, I'm just joking about that. Okay, so to the rest, I say this. Uh, this is, uh, <laughs> sorry, I'm going to go on to verse 12, uh, 10 and 11. To the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. All right? Uh, <laughs> so this is the Lord's command, not Paul's idea. To the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband. But if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. It actually, in our culture, divorce seems to be a solution to things. And what Paul is saying is for Christians, we would like to view marriage as something that is so sacred and so holy that we fight for it. People have taken this verse and applied it alone and gotten into trouble. And let me say this. The scripture is clear that it allows divorce in certain cases, even for Christians, in cases of abandonment and in cases of abuse and in cases of infidelity, according to the scripture, divorce is allowed. And so when I meet with people who have crisis in their marriage, I go through what the scripture says. And I say, here's what the scripture says, and this is what's allowed. Here's what's beautiful, and here's what's allowed. And I don't know a single person in my life who ever was married, who ended up experiencing separation or experiencing divorce, who thought this was the goal. Like, this is exactly what I was hoping would happen in my life. I'll say it this way. Divorce, according to Scripture, isn't sin. But divorce never happens without sin happening. Does that make sense? So it's not, if you're divorced here today, it's not, oh, you're divorced, therefore, by definition, you're rubber-stamped with a letter A that you're, like a scarlet letter, that you're bad. But... We know, whether it was you or the other person, or probably some combination of both of you in that marriage, there was sin that ended up in divorce. Let me tell you this. I haven't seen a marriage that hasn't involved sin. There have been times in every marriage that I've seen where one person fails the other person, where one person hurts the other person. And so sin is just a part of who we are, and divorce results when we're not able to overcome that sin. And it's not a judgment on whether you're a good person or a bad person. It's not a judgment on whether you're a good spouse or a bad spouse. It's a reality that you live into. And when Paul writes this, it's pastoral. A lot of people like to uh, take this and say, Paul is making a, a law. Like Paul says, there was this old law, Jesus fulfilled the law, and then what we do is say, oh, let's make a new law, and let's take the New Testament, and it's the new law with all the new rules. And what Jesus is saying is there was a law 
which was rules in the Old Testament, Jesus fulfilled that, and now we have a relationship with God and a relationship with each other. People take that and go, therefore, no rules. And in every relationship that I love the other person, I don't need rules because I'm so motivated by love that I don't need a guideline on where behavior exists and where, I, and where I'm allowed to go and where I'm not allowed to go in that loving relationship. I don't know anyone who has gotten married and been in, entered into the covenant of marriage, which the scripture teaches has been given to us to explain our relationship with God, and then said, so how far is too far? Like, what am I allowed to do and what are you not going to allow me to do? Because I want you to have the experience of thinking that I love you, but I still want to do what I want to do. No one's ever said that in wedding vows. And I've done lots of weddings. It's always been, I love you, and everything I am is now centered on you. And so when we take this scripture and then we, and we try to say, therefore, I'm allowed to do this, or I'm allowed to do this. Like if any time you're reading scripture and say, it's my right, you've lost the relationship with God. Let me say this. Anytime you're in a relationship and you say to the other person, this is my right, you've changed the relationship. You've changed something from trust to we now have an external control of who has the, what rights and what responsibilities. And it happens. But as soon as it happens, you know, things are starting to break and things are starting to fall apart in a way that you hoped it wouldn't be. Sometimes people take this too. I'm just going to say this for I'm going to give you 10 seconds. Sometimes people take this and they create arguments from silence. Like they say a man can do this, but a woman can't do this. Part of that is culturally because a, like a man can't divorce his wife and a woman can't separate. Well, a woman didn't have the ability to actually divorce. So it's not saying in here, well, I'm a woman. It doesn't say I can't, so I can. If you're doing arguments from silence to try to justify yourself before God, that's going to go very poorly for you someday when you're standing in front of him. Verse 12. To the rest I say this. I, not the Lord which is a confusing thing to say because it's in the Bible and therefore the Lord says it, but apparently Paul is saying it and not the Lord. But here we go. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. This should be, too, your attitude in marriage. Dudes, if you want to have a good marriage, say this. I love you because you're willing to live with me because I've seen dudes that live together. And for a woman to say, look at how those men live together, I would like to live with one of those is a miracle of love by itself. But in this particular context, if any brother, which is a, a, a member of the church, has a wife who's not a believer and she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. This is some of your experience. This is real, and this isn't a theory. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife. And sanctified means set apart from something and set apart not just from something to nowhere, but from something to something. And the unbelieving wife has been sanctified but through, through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. And that's a ritual thing from the, in the Jewish culture that Paul's, I'm not going to have time to get into that. But as it is, your children are holy. They are sacred. They are set apart. Uh, here's how it continues. Let's go to the next verse too. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or sister is not bound in such circumstances. So this is also 
a biblically uh, allowable reason for divorce. God has called us to leave in peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, how you will save your wife? So for a second, I want to talk to you if you have an unbelieving spouse. And I want you to know something. Because sometimes you can feel uh, lonely. Sometimes you can feel lonely here. Sometimes you can feel lonely in your small group. Sometimes you can feel lonely in your home. And I want you to know something that, like, and I'm, I'm not, this is not platitudes. If you're a believing person who's married to an unbelieving person, what I believe that means is that God loves that unbelieving person in such a particular way that they've chosen to give them a believing spouse. To be a living demonstration of the love of God in their life that will make that person holy and make your children holy in a particular way that we don't understand outside of the mysteries of God. If you're here and you have friends in this church or from another church where you have one person who's a believer and one who isn't, I want you to know something. That God has chosen that unbelieving person to experience an everyday practical demonstration of who God is and how God loves in their home directly, repeatedly, over and over and over. And it is so much more difficult than your life. When I go into new spaces, because it makes me nervous, I have a wife. And when I go into, like when I show up at church, if we're on vacation, I go to another church. Not in this town, like I leave town. <laughs> and I get to have somebody there with me. But for a lot of people, every single week, it's parking that, it's leaving your family at home. It's parking that car and walking into church by yourself. And you have been given a sacred role by God because your unbelieving spouse has been chosen for an everyday demonstration of who God is in their home. It is sacred, it is holy, and anyone who makes you feel lonely or out of place or less than or have pity on you, they're the ones that are incorrect. They're the ones that have a misunderstanding of what the Scripture teaches. I want to make that really clear. I've done series on marriage, and I know that, and that's sometimes difficult, right? Like, and, and because there are, you have married friends, uh, single people, or people who are, uh, we use the word spiritually single, which I try not to use that word because it's saying something that you're not single, you're married with an intention to be a witness of the glory of God in your home that makes your husband or your wife sanctified. The scripture actually teaches, I, I'm going to just go ahead and do some heresy. The scripture actually teaches that you don't see God unless you're sanctified. So if you're sanctifying your unbelieving person, is there uh, somehow a chance that they are actually saved? Now, that is a terrible thing to say, and I'm sure that I disagree with it. But wouldn't it be awesome if you get to heaven and you're there, and according to the scripture, your unbelieving spouse is there? And they were like, no, I don't want anything to do with that. And they give excuses, right, like they're Seahawks fans. And if you're a Seahawks fan, you know you need more prayer, not less. But <laughs> That's so stupid. But, but imagine that day that someday they're going to show up in heaven next to you. Next to you. Shocked. They might make fun of you going to church every week. They might say things about you. They might think you're wasting your time. And you're going to show up in heaven. And according to this, you're sanctifying your spouse. And who knows, you're going to show up in heaven and they're going to be next to you. 
And they're probably going to be frustrating because heaven is like church forever, right? <laughs> and there's no football ever. <laughs> well, that might not be true. Uh, depends on what you're thinking there. But you'll be standing next to them, and there seems to be the sanctification of this creating and making holy of this person next to you. Uh, individualistic salvation is a, kind of a newer concept, and so if you go back maybe 500 years, this is not heresy. Like some of you might think, well, they didn't accept Jesus, right? If they don't accept Jesus, they're not experiencing the fullness of life with the Holy Spirit right now, and that's sad. Like that's something to be sad about. But according to the scripture, it seems that they're going to heaven whether they like it or not. All uh, right. I spend a lot of time there, but I think that's important. Is that okay? Uh, like, I hope you're not upset if this isn't a part of your life, but this is a part of the life of a lot of people in our church, and they deserve to know what the Scripture teaches and know uh, their sacred calling into the role that they have. And so I'm going to have to rush to the next little bit uh, because my clock says zero, and I apparently respect it zero. <sighs> Let's go to verse 25. I'm going to talk to young, unmarried people. Uh, now, about you virgins. <laughs> Don't you love when the scripture says that and, and you're like, oh, please don't make eye contact with me. Okay. If you're sitting next to like your family and you want to slide over, that's fair. Um, now about virgins. I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Because of the present crisis, and that's the immorality, I think it is good for a man to remain as, as he is. So are you pledged to a woman? So are you engaged? Don't seek to be released. Are you free from such commitment? Don't look for a wife. Uh, and and it, the inference is the opposite as well. Uh, if you're a woman who's engaged or if you're a woman who's not engaged. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. If a virgin marries, uh, she has not sinned. Uh, but those who marry will face many troubles in this life. And I want to spare you from this. <laughs> possible scripture for your wedding if you're getting married and you're like could you preach on first corinthians 7 welcome to the trouble zone <laughs> what i mean brothers <laughs> okay i'm going to skip that verse actually uh verse 32 i would like you to be free from concern an unmarried man is concerned about the lord's affairs how he can please the lord but a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world how he can please his wife and his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or a, or a virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world and how she can please her husband. I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you might live in a, way, in a right way of undivided devotion to the Lord. If, if anyone is worried he might not be acting honorably towards the virgin he is engaged to and if his passions are too strong and he feels he ought to marry he should do as he wants and that refers to he should do as he wants get married he is not sinning they should get married but the man who has settled his, the matter in his own mind who is under no compulsion but has control over his own will but has made up his mind not to marry the virgin uh, which would be the young woman this man also does the right thing. So then he who marries the virgin does right. And so you know, the virgin and the young woman is very interchangeable. Uh, but it doesn't, yeah, okay, so I'm just going to say that. So then he who marries the virgin does right, but he who does not marry her does better. A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone 
she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. But he must belong to the Lord. Single people. Here's what the scripture teaches. It's so awesome that you're single. Because your entire focus and your entire devotion can be to the Lord. Now, some of you are single, and your entire focus and your entire devotion is to overcoming that problem. You've decided it's a problem. That's a problem that I'm single. And maybe you haven't even decided on your own. You've decided that because all your annoying married friends won't shut up about it. And you're like, man, if I want to be in this group, I need to be married. If I want to be hanging out with these people, I need to have a husband to complain about because they always complain about their husbands, right? Don't. This is what the Bible says. Don't. Don't worry about it. If you're seeking to feel, feel some kind of a fulfillment through being married, God actually wants to give you that fulfillment. Like you, sometimes people feel less than because someone of the opposite gender has never chosen them. Or they chose them and then unchose them, and now someone else hasn't chose them, or maybe that's happened multiple times. But when God loves us, it's with the expression that we had in that video, God loves us permanently and persistently and never fails. And when Jesus died on the cross, he died on the cross because he chose you. Whether you're single or you're married, whatever your status is, whether it's complicated or not, Jesus chose you in a permanent kind of way. And so if you're feeling less than because you're feeling not chosen, God actually wants to heal that. N not necessarily through another person, but through himself. This is not easy, because this is radically countercultural. And not even countercultural just to the world, but countercultural to what, like, American church culture is. Like I talked at the beginning, a lot of us think, like, if you're a good Christian, you grow up, you get married, you have kids, you repopulate the church, because that's our only strategy, because we don't evangelize, because it's weird, right? Like, it works for the Mormons, maybe it'll work for us. The, there's, uh, the band's ready and they're laughing. Um, I want to say this as clearly as possible, and, and I know I've rushed through this because I spent some time on some other things, but I want to be really clear. If you're single, God loves you exactly where you are, and not just that, but God has the wholeness of the will of his life plan and his goals and his peace and his freedom from worry for you in the station that you're in. If you're burning and you don't have the ability to control your compulsions, you should get married. You should go ahead and find someone who is, belongs to the Lord. The scripture is clear. Don't go marrying some Joe that doesn't even... Or some, I, I, one of my friends is Joe, and in Canada I grew up saying, it's a Joe job, meaning it's an easy job, and I said that in front of my friend Joe, and it was offensive. So don't go marrying some loser that doesn't love Jesus. All right, we're going to say that. Don't go marry some loser in general, but certainly not a loser who doesn't love Jesus. And don't marry some loser who never comes to church but comes to church with you because you're pretty. Because once he puts a ring on that finger, he's out, right? And then you're spending your whole life sanctifying this loser who fooled you. Don't let them fool you. All right? And it's serious. I'm, I'm joking, but I'm serious. 
Because I've seen single people who love Jesus, who are being used by God for great things, who lower their standard. And, and here's what the standard is according to the scripture, loves Jesus, all right? They lower their standard. I don't care about your standards as far as male pattern baldness or uh, weight issues, or I don't care about your standards for that. I care about your standards, love Jesus. Does this person love Jesus? Does this person help me grow spiritually? And if they do, and you're burning, get married. Go ahead. Because marriage ultimately is a choice to make difficult decisions day after day after day. Because every day you wake up and you think, I'm the most important person in the world. And then you roll over and say, ah, crap, I decided someone else is. <laughs> and you have to live your life every day fighting against the carnal nature that Jesus is actually working to defeat in your life. To the, your married friends, the reason they're married is because they won every day so far. They're lost. The days that they lost didn't destroy their wins. And if you're not married, or you were married, somewhere in that, it didn't work. And that isn't a judgment on you, it's a crud. And we're like, God doesn't say, therefore I judge you. God says, therefore I'm with you in that. Because I know that's not easy and I know it's hard. And sometimes it's not even your choice. Sometimes it was, but sometimes it's the reality that you're living in. But if you're single, I want you to understand this clearly, that any time one of your Christian friends tries to tell you you should get married because then you'd be a better Christian, what they're saying is the opposite of what Jesus says. That's heresy. Because the scripture teaches that when you're free from a man or you're free from a woman, as long as you're not burning and thinking about that all the time, you're free to serve God in ways that other people can't. In a very simple, practical way, because I have a wife and kid, if, God, if, if there's an emergency that happens on the other side of the world and God feels like I feel like God's calling me to go do that, I have to have conversations with people, I have to figure out their education, I have to do it like it's just a pain in the butt and I end up not following the will of God. But a single person goes, uh, auto-respond on my email, bye, and goes and serves God. Right? They have an opportunity and an ability to serve God that makes, I'm going to say this, single people, that makes your married friends useless. And you have a usefulness to God that is unique because of where you are in life that is incredible and amazing. And you'll do things for God that your friends that complain about their spouse will never do. And your friends that brag about their unimpressive children, they will never do. Next steps. All right. I had to say something from the married people because you know single people, they're annoyed because we haven't been talking about that. Married people, because it's all about that. Uh, here's what I want you to do. I actually want, and this, I want you to pray together. Last week, if you were here or if you weren't, you can listen to the podcast. I said I wanted you to be intimate together because Jesus is there in a particular way and I tried to ruin that for you and now I want to ruin it more. I want you to pray together. If you've never prayed together, Look up a prayer on the internet, praying with your spouse. It'll give you the words to say and make it as awkward as possible. Kneel down beside your bed and pray together. It might be terrible, right? If your spouse is unmarried, say to them, hey, can we pray together? I will, like, I just want, it'll be quick and, and uh, like, it won't be, I won't go on and on. I just, 
would love to try this. And maybe they say no, and maybe you pray by yourself, but I want you to pray together, because I'm telling you, if you pray together, you will fall more in love. If you pray together, you experience increased intimacy in your marriage. Let me say this. If you pray for each other, it's way more difficult to hate each other. When people I hate, I pray for them. Because it makes it, like, and I pray good things for them. I sometimes pray bad things first, but I eventually pray good things for them. And it makes it harder for my heart to hate them. All right? Now, let's get past that single people. If you're single, here's the challenge. I want you to consider asking God to help you not see your singleness as a problem that needs to be solved. And there's a lot of people around you and around the like your friends and maybe not your friends, maybe it's a voice inside of your head or an expectation that you had. I want to encourage you to let God free you from that. Way more difficult. Married people, all they have to do is say words with their eyes closed together. Single people, I'm calling you to something that's way more challenging because you're way more able. Because God's gifted you in a particular and in a special way and put you in a special way in your station. The next steps are in the bulletin and you can take that home with you and say, this is what James asked me to do. And don't do it, even if you can't do it for yourself, do it for me, all right? Because the Bible says that you are so important. And as your pastor, I feel exactly the same way. And I hope that you're able to live into everything that God has for you in the station that you find yourself in. Let's pray and the band will come out, all right? Let's stand. We stand to pray at the end. Lord, um, I want to thank you for this scripture. And it is a bit intense, and sometimes it is a bit confrontive. And so please take our offense or take our confusion or take the things that we find difficult to hear and help us to choose your ways over our own ways. And I don't say that glibly, Lord, because I think that's the most difficult thing that we choose every single day. We wake up and we have a great idea with how our life should go, how our world should be ordered. Help us to choose your way day after day after day after day. And we have this long, slow, small step obedience in the same direction and we find ourselves growing in you and experiencing more of you. May your grace fill us in that place. Whether we're here and we're single or married, whether our spouse is a believer or not, I want to pray for your mercy and your grace and your love to be poured out on us in such a way that we experience everything that you are. Take our lives, take our wills, take our intimacy, and make it yours. Overcome our resistance. Bless us in these commitments that we're making today in prayer and in an understanding of the station and life that we're in and lead us into your ways. By your grace, I pray. Amen.